I want to extend my warmest congratulations on the Holberg Prize. Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, the Holberg Prize, of course, is not the first prize that you have won. Uh, several of your books have won prestigious prizes, honorary fellowships and doctorates at 14 different universities <laughs> worldwide. <laughs> You're a fellow of the, of the British Academy and you were appointed commander of the Order of the British Empire in 2008. And then earlier this year, you were appointed Dame Commander of the British <laughs> Empire for your services to higher education and literary scholarship. So it's quite an impressive CV, mm -hmm. to say the least. And I'm not going to recount the, your whole bibliography today because that will take up all the space we have, I guess. But I managed to count 34 full-length book publications alongside <laughs> numerous articles, journalisms you also write, and then a lot of talks, presentations, several places. When asked to summarize your work yourself, you stated that your work is dedicated to, quote, understand the human love of telling fantastic stories. Uh, and as far as I understand, this quest is also a personal quest and a desire to understand your own life. Uh, as you explain in Stranger Magic, you were brought up a Catholic. And even though you have struggled to free your faith, free yourself from your faith a long time ago, you say, you are still attracted to implausible, impossible and fantastic stories. An attraction that puzzles you, you're right. So I was wondering if you could start to tell us a little bit more about the forces that led you into a lifelong study of these fantastic stories, myths and fairy tales, and where it has taken you on a personal level, that is. Well, first of all, thank you very much. I feel a bit overwhelmed by your very kind, generous um, praise. Thank you. Um, well, first of all, my father was a bookseller, so I was completely surrounded all my life by books. and. His response to any interest that I showed, and later my sister showed, would be to bring us the books from the shop that, <laughs> that met what uh, question it was that we'd asked. And so very, very, very early, I mean, as long as ago as I can remember, the world inside my head was as important as the world outside. I mean, what I could discover through imagining it, through reading, had as much of a presence. This is slightly different from some childhoods. I mean, the, the, the omnipresence mm. of books and the omnipresence of the represented world through, through what is conjured rather than what is experienced directly, that, that was really highly marked in my, in my childhood because of my the surround, being surrounded by books. And there are other writers whose childhoods are rather similar. It's not unusual for... Um, writers to emerge out of a very strong background of books and imaginative journeying. First, I wanted to ask you more specifically, what do you think are the conditions of possibility for storytelling today? And I would like to pick up on something that you wrote in your book, Once Upon a Time, a short uh, a history of fairy tales that came out last year, uh, which is a very readable, very dense book where you tell the whole history of fairy tales in not that many pages, actually. <laughs> but where you trace the fairy tale then according to what you say is six main defining cat uh, cat uh, cat 
<laughs> characteristics. Uh, first of all, that they are short narratives. Second, that they are familiar stories, uh, which then present themselves as some sort of accumulated wisdom that they involve that they evolve through combinations and recombinations of known elements that they are linguistic acts of imagination that's also consoling helping people in in hard times uh, that they interweave the supernatural agency and pleasure and wonder and that they express hope and then typically hope through this happy ending. And you find these characteristics to be quite persistent or consistent throughout the history of the fairy tale. But then you end up your book in a somewhat different note, where you claim that today fairy tales are, you don't say that they're no longer possible, but they are gradually turning into myths. That is, that they are stories held in common about the deepest dilemmas, but are no longer aiming at being optimistic or consoling, but rather more bearers of wisdom, deep, thought-provoking and illuminating. And I was wondering if you could explain what you mean by that, and what do you think are the reasons for this development? Well, the, one of the distinctions between myth and fairy tale in the past would have been that myths featured gods and goddesses and that they felt to us as if they were connected to somebody's religion. It would be not our religion, mm -hmm. but that the Greeks believed in those gods and goddesses, the Norsemen believed in those gods and goddesses, and the Aboriginal Australians believed that those were divine beings in the stories that they were telling. The, we, we don't remember them as well as we did. I mean, the culture of classical Greek mythology, which I was brought up in, for example, is not really known the way it was. They have slightly fallen away. And with that, that fading, what has happened is that the difference between fairies and gods has slightly changed. So fairies now feel powerfully supernatural, more powerfully supernatural mm -hmm. than they used to. If you were a Victorian child, you would have known more about Zeus and Hera and Aphrodite, because even children's books had mm -hmm. real the stories of the Odyssey and the Iliad. Um, and fairies were little creatures who looked like insects and <laughs> had butterfly wings and lived inside flowers. Um, and they were not nearly as powerful. So there's a disparity. Mm. But what's happened is that with the fading of the mythologies from our consciousness and the salience of fairies and supernatural agents of one kind or another through massive amounts of popular media. I mean, for example, trolls. I, I don't know enough about trolls in the past um, in, in Scandinavia, but they are now ever, absolutely ever-present. I mean, they are a very powerful figure of the contemporary imagination and the whole concept of a pervasive magic has I think it's been one of my arguments has been intensified by the ordinary magic of our technologies because we we live in a first of all the ordinary magic of our technologies disseminates these ideas much faster and much more um, ebulliently than at any period previously. I mean, the speed 
and multiplication of such motifs across the web. The web is an absolute powerhouse of supernatural imaginings. Um, and it's carried by a technology that is itself weirdly immaterial, uncanny. In, 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 you know, they call it the digital uncanny. And I think that's a very good phrase. So the digital uncanny has also made possible CGI, computer-generated imagery, that has a very, very strong material convincing presence. So, for example, Avatar, a film I quite mm -hmm. liked. I mean, I thought it was actually rather a powerful film. In Avatar, those flying dinosaurs um, on which the, the, the heroines and heroes actually ride, so the real figure <coughs> rides on a CGI animal. So you see a real actor, <coughs> not like in Disney where the, everything is cartoons. Mm -hmm. In a CGI film, the real people, as you know, are mixed up with CGI-generated creatures. And so for a child, the presence is extremely vivid. I mean, even for adults, the presence is extremely vivid. It's quite difficult to remember that these are not real animals that are being, that are flying through these extraordinarily vivid landscapes. So, so this, this, this destabilization of reality through our uncanny and digital media has actually created a mythological presence of forces um, that are more like fairyland then they are like gods. Mm -hmm. It's no longer embodied in individuals. It's much more embodied in these forces. So they become uh, yeah. a sort of new myth. Yeah, and so, so as a result, I think, they, they have, yes, they've grown, they've, they've rather overtaken the, the landscape of the imagination. And, and with that effect, more and more adults are now reading this material. So the, one of the one of the effects has been that we have the crossover book. Now, there were crossover books in the past. In fact, you could call the Odyssey a crossover book. But Alice in Wonderland is a crossover mm -hmm. book. But now there really are many, many. I mean, J.K. Rowling, as you know, packaged for two different sets of readers. The uh, Lord of the Rings, the, uh, the um, Philip Pullman, whom I admire very much. Um, has they, these are now read by children and by adults. But of course, adults are not only satisfied by the promise coming out right. Adults know they want more complexity than that simple promise, which I really believe in. I really love the simple promise, but it is a simple promise. Mm -hmm. And so more and more fairy tale material does not offer hope. I mean, that is just something that has happened. Pan's Labyrinth is a Mar Guillermo del Toro's film. I don't know if it was a hit here in Scandinavia. <laughs> it's a very, very powerful, very good film and a very good example of what's happening because it's a fairy tale and there are little fairies in it, little digitized fairies mm. that appear at the very beginning. But um, it's also a mythic story of a descent into the underworld by a little girl. So she's both Alice, she even looks like Alice, but at the end she doesn't come out, she's sacrificed. She's a Persephone figure who goes into the dark, into the winter and into down underground in order to regenerate. So that's, you see, that's, a, that's, a com that's an example of the combination of elements that is, and it's responding to, you know, an understanding of what you were talking about, the 
conflicts and disasters in the world. And the Gothic is a very good barometer of when there are there is a sense of of deep unease, a sense of clashing and ambiguous states uh, that we have no solution to. So you get peaks in the mm. Gothic. The Gothic comes with the French Revolution, it returns at the end of the 19th century with a lot of chaos between secularism and anti-clericalism <coughs> and, and the church and then the rise of <coughs> communism, rise of fascism. The Gothic, very, very strong. And the Gothic is again very strong. It's again very strong yeah. with all this. So the Gothic is a the Gothic is a mm -hmm. twist on fairy tale, um, but dark. But, but, but very dark, yes. Yeah, and also grotesque. A grotesque is a form of darkness that is comic. So you have this the, the, the sort of vampire film, which is now, I mean, vampires. They they will be another index if, to take them as a figure rather than as a genre. So Gothic is the genre, but vampires are the figure. So zombies and vampires used to be different. Zombies used to be slaves who had been evacuated of their personality, their soul, and just driven by the slave master, the zombie master, to do his will, usually his will. So they would just walk, shuffle, do their job all night long, all day long. And they really grew out of slavery in the plantations in the, in the West Indies. Mm. And they were very different. But then in the mid 19th to 20th century, they began to be turned into vampires. So in the great film, The Night of the Living Dead, the zombies are cannibals and they come back and so, though they behave like zombies, they shuffle and they have no volition. Their one drive is to devour, is to eat. So they have become figures. In, in, his, in Romero, the director's mind, they, it was quite clear. I mean, he, he was very conscious. He was a politically conscious person. They were figures of the proletariat rebelling against their enslavement um, by the industrial military complex of America. So, um, so we're really living in this mythic yes. times now. <laughs> well, <laughs> more maybe so than ever? Well, um, certainly the mass media and the possibilities of the digital uncanny have created, yes, uh, conditions in which ideas spread in a very epidemic way and so yes and i guess it also because fairy tales are more for like common people uh, that you can invent stories you can invent stories that um, you were talking about for example is, is when you're starving you can invent stories about this bowl of porridge that never is yes. empty and that aspect has then disappeared or the possibility for that has disappeared those simple stories that we tell each other with happy endings that are consoling and that are a different fabric of life? Well, no, I don't think the possibility has vanished. And I think that there's a role for fairy tale. In a sense, I would like to bring that back. And I mean, I think there are some examples, mass market examples, where that still takes place. And feminism has made a difference to that. I mean, because there were, you know, it was the post-war generation has now raised an entire new generation. They are now in place, um, writing books, writing poetry, composing. So you get some examples of songs. Mm. I mean, there are some very interesting singers who use fairy tale motifs, who, who think about these issues. 
And it, it's a way, I mean, what, what some of the young women do is they look at the pain of human beings, sometimes the female pain, but sometimes pain in relationships. So it's also male pain or the pain of a child. And they think about that in their songs. And, and then, of course, there's a lot of women working in film. And they have made a difference to the direction of film. I don't particularly want to um, sort of insist on the mass market element, but it's easier to talk about mass market examples because people more likely in hearing this will have seen them. Mm -hmm. But for example, Angelina Jolie's film um, of The Sleeping Beauty, Maleficent, oh, which is also a sort of Snow White film. Well, in that, Angelina Jolie, who has very particular political ideas, as you probably know, she's a campaign, she's a quite a ser serious uh, global campaigner for very good causes, and she's adopted many children herself. Whatever you think about that, whether this is, you know, but anyway, she, she, she thinks about things. And she was the producer of Maleficent as well as the main role. And she's an example of one of the, uh, of an actress, or actor, as we now call them in English, um, She's an example of an actor who, reaching a certain age, has become very interested in the older women in fairy tales. Mm. This is a phenomenon across the cinema at the moment. All the act, 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 female actors who are now in their 40s are playing the wicked stepmother, the, uh, the wicked fairy. They're interested in exploring figures of female agency and seeing if that agency, which has previously been stigmatized as evil, can actually be understood, not explained away, but understood, entered from within, empathized with, and therefore you enlarge the sense of consciousness. And I think in Maleficent she really got quite near to doing something very, very interesting with the figure of the wicked stepmother. And I was very moved by the change she introduced to the story. So at the end, when the Sleeping Beauty is lying, cursed, and and the kit, the prince has kissed her, and she hasn't woken up. She hasn't. Woken she doesn't up. wake up with the prince's kiss, because it's not true love. So he, she doesn't wake up, and at that point, the wicked queen, who has cursed her, wicked fairy, is overcome by remorse, and she goes up to the um, sleeping beauty, and asks her forgiveness for this terrible thing that she did. And that wakes her up. And I really thought that was very beautiful because this was the conversion of the evil stepmother realizing that she actually loves the child. And that was a very, I think that was a lesson that, um, you know, Angelina Jolie had truly thought about her position as a foster mother, as a possibly stepmother, I don't know if she's a stepmother, but as a foster mother, that these, this, this tense relationship that is so enshrined in fairy tales that you know, there's never any redemption in that relationship in fairy tales. That she tried to introduce it. Mm. Is yeah, and then it becomes like a counter narrative, right? And yes, that's something that's, that yes. you are yes. working a lot yes. on, yes. on, on yes. too. Both in relationships to fairy tales and in relationship to to myths, yes. also and to and to political ideology. Anti-political ideology, yes, yes. which mythology, of course, is steeped yes, in. Absolutely. Uh, and yes. that was because I was going to bring yes. up this, because myths have a dual function yes. uh, or a dual significance. Uh, on the one hand, they, they signify something 
they can they act as keys to understanding our inner lives, the structures of our consciousness, and maybe even unconsciousness, and and the whole society, the, the consciousness of the whole society. Yes. So they're bearer of knowledge, wisdom, insights, and stuff like that. But on the other hand, of course, mm. they're very very strong ideological tools. Yes. Um, mm. As for example, Roland Barthes has shown yes. us, but also Simone de Beauvoir and Angela yes. Carter, uh, how myths are then historical constructions which actually then masquerades as some sort of natural Absolutely. natural facts. Yeah. And I was going to ask you about, because you write a lot about that in another book of you called Managing Monsters, uh, Six Myths of Our Times, where you link this ideological um, baggage in, 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 in myths to, to power structures on three levels. And one of them is exactly how then myths control children and women uh, and how they are expressions of masculine power and also how they're on a national level always construct national identity by purging it from something alien, something outside, mm -hmm. some, uh, some uh, foreigner. Yes. And of course, these power structures need to be deconstructed, as yes. you say. But you still insist that the most powerful antidote remains that of telling counter stories. Mm. And this you wrote in 1994, but I guess you still believe that. Yes, uh, yes. I mean, I think that uh, some some aspects of those um, they were lectures originally, six myths of our time. Um, some aspects are really disappointingly unchanged. I mean, I it, it, it's. I mean, I think, for example, I wrote about the expectation of masculinity, because while I'm, I'm a feminist, I also have a son, mm -hmm. and I'm very. I'm very, very aware of how men are constructed too. Um, and, and I do feel that that has shifted a little. I mean, there, are, there is a better um, tolerance of m m men's uh, um, parenthood. Whereas before, you know, men, men were simply expected to go back to work immediately. You know, it made no mm. difference to them whether they'd had a child or not. Whereas now, even in England, <laughs> <laughs> we give them a little You're bit supposed to care. <laughs> they give them a little bit of time to be at home with their new baby <laughs> and the baby's mother. Mm. So, um, so, there, there, so, there, and so there are ways that that has shifted. And, and men now in England, for example, don't feel that they can't carry their baby on their tummy, you know, in the street or wheel their baby. In the, I mean, literally, my father would never have, you know, held a, had a baby thing. I never. I mean, it just was not done. Men did not do that. So the, the construction of masculinity has shifted a bit, but not nearly enough in my respect. I think that young men are expected to be, you know, hard and sexually aggressive in ways that are very damaging to them as well as to the women, mm. as well as to women. But just to come back to the Arabian Nights, mm. because some of this movement then from uh, from bedazzlement mm. to condensation. Condescension, yes. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, it's, it's also this othering of the other, yes. right? And, and belittling of the other or exhortation of the other mm. or making him into this yes. something completely other than the subject. But it also does something with 
the notion of the magic and the notion of the wonder and then the notion of amusement and that some kind of magic then can only be tolerated yes. when mm. wearing foreign dress and yes. they don't really fit into our rational way yes. of, of, of thinking. Yes. And I think one of the most important things that you are doing in, in, in Arabian Nights is that you're trying to resuscitate some of the earlier, more visionary and tolerant engagement with uh, mm. Oriental material, mm. and two of your main characters, or your two favorite characters in this this respect, is Mozart, uh, particularly his Cosi von Tutti, and then Goethe <laughs> with yes. his Westöstliche Divan. Uh, and I know this is a very broad question, but perhaps you can tell us a little bit more about those two, and and what do you think we can learn from Mozart and Goethe today? Well, I suppose with Cosi van Tutte, which actually people think of as rather misogynist and also rather orientalist, because there's often a very comic scene when the two uh, lovers come back dressed as um, Albanians, in fact, um, but in, in full um, Ottoman dress. Um, the, um, the people have often dismissed that as being, and the abduction from the Seraglio also is a kind of harem fantasy of, um, of a savage despot typically oriental. So people don't associate Mozart with, with such tolerance or, um, or broadening of, the, of one's ideas about, about the East. But the, the point that I tried to make, and I think Edward Said actually makes it first, so I, shan't, I shouldn't, I shouldn't <laughs> claim it, is that um, at the end of the opera, when they all sing together, they have all been changed by the experience. So they've all realized that they've entered, that by their encounter with this imagined other, they've learned something about themselves um, and they're humbler. They, they've entered more deeply. They, they, they're in, their, in, their, in their discovery that they are easily led, easily taken in, easily um, overtaken by prejudices or, or expectations, um, yes, that, that, they, that they have become in a sense, they have better. Well, the music makes us feel they become better people because it's so sublimely beautiful, <laughs> where they're all singing together, and there is this, and it's there's a sadness in it. It's not a it's not a happy finale. There's a sadness and a troublement. It's kind of it's ambiguous, but basically they've encountered something that makes them understand themselves better, and understand each other better. And, and that's that, also because it, it plays not only on otherness, but also on sameness. Yes, that, yes. The attraction to the Arabian Nights. Yes, yes. So they, they, I mean, I think there are two points. One is that the, there is a definite underlying prejudice that makes it possible for the Western reader to consume pleasure as long as it's distanced in costume. That still continues. It's still very, very strong device. We are not irrational. They are irrational. And watching them being irrational is great fun for us. We dress soberly. We wear proper suits. They wear crazy clothes with, you know, silks. And men wear perfume and earrings, for God's sake, you know. So, <laughs> so, so but, you know, so we can enjoy seeing them do this. And sometimes we like dressing up like them, too, you know, because this was this exactly what I, they did. I'm now yes. working. I'm now doing I'm going to write an essay on fancy dress, fancy dress in the empire. 
was a tremendous um, divertissement at Christmas. Mm -hmm. So all these, you know, British colonial servants with huge moustaches and beards would dress up as gypsies. And anyway, I, I'm quite, quite interested in this othering of yourself in order to get to a place where you feel more yourself. So, so there's, but there is an underlying prejudice. We, we are the rational ones, they are the irrational ones, and we just absorb and we voyeuristically enjoy them, watching them perform. Um, so that's not so good. But at the same time, the, through a work like um, Così fan tutte, or perhaps uh, presenting the Arabian Nights in a certain way, um, as I sort of tried to do, and quite a lot of writers now are taking up different themes in the Arabian Nights, and trying to do something with them that um, also speaks to this need to open up a dialogue between the Muslim world and the non-Muslim world. And, um, and, and there's a lot of imaginative strategies, in fact, very, very interesting ones. So, so there, is, there is a way in which the accepting this history of othering can take us to a place where it's not so much that it's, they cease to be other, because as you know, in the philosophy of gender and identity and so forth, we need to respect difference. So it's very important not to create an assimilationist um, program, not, not to make them same, but to, re to, to keep distinctiveness. But for the distinctiveness to be rooted in history, and the understanding of different approaches to to knowledge. I mean, one of the one of the sorry one of the areas where there's been a lot of work, and I noticed that Salman Rushdie has actually just written a short story in the current New Yorker um, about this. There's been a lot of work on the transmission of Western knowledge through Arabic copyists, so that and also Arabic commentators. Mm -hmm. So Rushdie, who's actually called after Averroes. You know, the name is made up. His father made it up. The name was something else. His father made it up in, in homage to Averroes, whose name in Arabic is Ibn Rushd. Rushd. So, so, this, so Rushdi, in this short story, is writing about Ibn Rushd, after whom he was named by his father, <laughs> um, and how Ibn Rushd copied Aristotle and other Greeks and then got into trouble for his work and was banished from court in, in Andalusia. And then after the fundamentalists in that era were, were um, again, uh, um, were repudiated by the Sultan, um, Averroes was brought back to court. So in a sense, Rushdie sees his own story of being banned as in, in, in the light of the past. But in this, in this short story, he also tells the story of the transmission of Greek philosophy through Arabic, through the transmi Arabic. Through the because, Arabic yeah. transmission. Because that's actually what the, uh, the Arabic tradition yes. did. They yes. kept alive yes. these Greek traditions yes. where and there's been a lot Europe of was yes. <laughs> busy being yes. Christians, yes. actually. <laughs> and there's been, a lot of more, there's been a lot of historical work now on early waves of, um, you know, the different, I mean, it's very, very complicated, the different dynasties and the different histories of larger Andalusia, which went right up to Toledo, mm. and, you know, the smaller Andalusia that fell when Granada fell. And anyway, there's, a, there's a bit, I mean, one of the, one of the sort of good effects 
if one could say such a thing, of consequences, has been a, a, an attempt to deepen, uh, to deep since 9-11, has been an attempt to deepen our understanding. But we're still extremely short of people who can read Arabic. I mean, I can't read Arabic, and uh, though I'm very interested in it, and Rushdie can't read Arabic. I mean, he writes a lot about it, but he can't read it. Absolutely. I mean, of course he can't read it. Why should he be able to read it? But, but what I'm saying is that one of the, one of the um, sources of the misunderstanding and is, is simply that we're ignorant. I mean, we are deeply ignorant. You, in, in uh, your book on myths, you end each chapter by telling your own counter story to, to these, these uh, <laughs> power structures. And in a sense, I think, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, your whole writing career consists in trying to make such counter stories. Uh, and in this respect, I also think that it's right to read Stranger Magic, your study of Arabian night, as a counter story or setting mm -hmm. up of a counter story. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yes. And maybe first and foremost, because it's the interweaving of the different legacies of the book. Uh, as you state in the introduction, of course, Arabian Nights is both unmistakably Arabic and at the same time it's a legacy of world literature, uh, presenting a polyvocal anthology of, of world myths, fables and, and, and fairy tales. And it's exactly this dual kind of uh, situation or situatedness of the work that is also characteristic for your own specific take on it, because you're seeking both then to, to, to find these Arabic influences, these European influences, and trying to tie them together in yet another, yet a new, intricate, interwoven story about not only the past, but also about the present time. Um, so I was wondering if you can elaborate a mm, little bit mm. on this point, what I see as your own methodology maybe in this work, and I want to ask you, do you perceive yourself perhaps as just as much a storyteller as an interpreter, an academic? If, of course, I mean, it's possible to distinguish it's <laughs> these two practices. Um, well, um, I, um, I was in Paris, actually, when the first war in Iraq broke out. And um, I was trying, listening very carefully to the radio because it was in French. So I had to pay more attention to understand it. And all the words, the names of the places where this war was happening were all familiar to me. But they were familiar to me from mm. the Arabian Nights. And when it said La Route de Basra, I thought, my good, the road to Basra, that's in, you know, <laughs> several of the Arabian so, so, and, and that made me realize that these two maps were the same map. I mean, the, the map of the Arabian Nights, which seemed to be totally fantastic, was actually the same ground that was now this battlefield. And of course that continued and I did feel, you know, what is there for me to do? I mean, I can mm. go on a march, I can tell the government, to the deaf ears of the government, <laughs> that I don't <laughs> believe in their, camp, their, their war. But, you know, this is, this is, I can't do anything, but maybe, maybe as a writer I can try and look at these stories and see if there's another way of thinking about this. And that's what led me to what you kindly described, exactly what I tried to do, is I tried to give an alternative, a counter-narrative, first to the Orientalism of the Arabian Nights, in the sense that they had, though much loved, they had always been thought of as exactly the kind of Orient that 
put the Orient into, you know, a weak, exotic mm -hmm. um, perspective that demeaned it, that didn't grant it um, adulthood, that made it infantile, and so, um, and so I, yes, I began. And I wanted, so there were two, really two axes. The principal axis was that the book had in, to some extent been made in common. That doesn't mean that they didn't, they weren't originally Persian, Indian, Turkish, etc., from the region, Asia Minor and um, the Middle East, but that they had been so taken up by the West in its enthusiasm. First of all, that the first publication was in French, mm -hmm. And then the dissemination. You know, most people have not read the Arabian Nights, but most people know the Arabian Nights, and that's a paradox. I mean, this is a book that is known through numerous, you know, transformations in other media, or just by word of mouth, or by proverbial. You know, Shahrazad means something, Alibaba means something, Aladdin means something. So these things are in, in the air. So I was interested in that. But then, really, I suppose the, the heart of the book. Is about is an answer to the question why did the Enlightenment take up this book because it comes out in the early 18th century and its popularity spreads and increases all through the siècle de lumière the Enlightenment and um, and I tried to answer that by suggesting that there are elements in the book that refract reality in extremely illuminating ways, and that this was unconsciously recognized by its first receivers. But it's still a, a complicated story you tell. I mean, it's interesting in itself that the Arabian Nights circulated in manuscript form mm. in Arabic for, for centuries, but that, as you said, the first printed edition mm. is the French uh, French mm. translation mm. and editing, of course, by mm. Antoine Galland yes. that came out in the beginning of the 18th, 18th century, mm -hmm. um, and and then you like you like his Galland's take on it. I mean, he takes out a lot of things, but still he writes with this gaiety and, yes. and, and interest and understanding that kind of makes the stories flourish in in some certain way. But then you recount the story about its dissemination in the West that mm -hmm. is somewhat disheartening, going from this uh, initial awe, inspiration, mm. towards more and more commercial, commercialization, exotization, and belittling maybe even, mm. even, even too. Uh, you, you talk about it as a development from bedazzlement to condensation. Mm. Uh, condescension. Condescension. And yes. what do you think the reasons for I think for that's that a quote from Edward Said. Yes, you, you yes, quote a quote, it in it's your a quote from Edward Said, yes, mm -hmm. yes, in Orientalism, yes. Yeah. Mm, yes. So, so what mm. do you think the reasons for that are? Why, why couldn't uh, definitely, they this? They're definitely political. They're to do with the fall of the Ottoman Empire and the gradual degradation and, and, um, and, and enfeeblement and the rise of the Europe, the, the rise of the Europe, the Western powers, the French Empire and the um, British Empire in particular. And uh, this, because, I mean, it's an absolute... It's, it's an, it's, we still are suffering indeed. We are, could not be suffering more the after effects of these periods of colonization and their attitude to cultural legacy, which shows again how important the relationship to culture is. Because one of the main differences between a myth and 
fairy tale um, and myth as a religious um, form of narrative is that there, there has n never been a demand that fairy tale, fairy tale has never had an institution that has demanded obedience. There is no such thing as the, Im the, the, the imperative for acquiescence to the belief system of fairyland. And that's a huge difference. Mm. In there, in, in th and one of the reasons that fairy tale is attractive to contemporary writers and filmmakers and theatre and so forth is because it is an open field. You can do whatever you want with it. There is no priest, there is no pope, there is no mullah. But the so, counter stories then, how yes, can they yes. be told? And, and, yes. And, and who can tell them and how will they be disseminated and will they be heard or will they just become part of well, the Well, I same? think one can only, I mean, if one's going to have any sort of belief in the humanities at all, and I have not, more, not only a belief in the humanities, I have a, a kind of deep conviction that, you know, to put it very sort of crudely, that imagination actually leads reality. We have very great difficulty in understanding reality. We have di very dif difficulty in knowing what is happening to us if we haven't got some prior structures and images to bring to the de deciphering it. So, so it seems to me that it, it, it is absolutely imperative that we continue to commit ourselves to weaving this fabric. So that's, but unfortunately, the arts are considered a sort of luxury. You know, the, the arts are often the front line of responses to ecology, uh, to the, the sense of what it is to be human, to responsibility. Mm -hmm. It's frequently the artists who immediately um, will make works to try and embrace humanity or at least institute justice. Or So if you don't try and keep them um, flourishing, I mean, they will continue. It's not as if, you know, they Art need subsidy oh, to no. people. It's, mm. Humans do that. But, but it is better if they're given propitious circumstances in which that can happen. And then, uh, then you, at the end you describe the, the whole of the Arabian Nights in the following terms as these really big, immense amount of stories that's immensely complicated, that is immensely long, but at the end they tie together or the story comes out. Uh, and then you have moved them from what you call the complacent cynicism from the frame of the frame story towards then a politics of love and justice that opens the cruel sultan's eyes to another vision of humanity and to his responsibility as a ruler. And what I wanted to ask you too about too was, is this very length and complexity indicative of how much work it takes to reach new visions of humanities. And do you think that in our hustle bustle time that everything has to go so quickly and fast that we actually have the patience to reach a new vision? The, um, one of the things that I'm very, I'm very aware of is that a lot of the finest contemporary work across different media film and music um, and writing are very committed to slowness, very committed to concentration, absorption, the process, the patient, persevering, 
Um, and that actually one of the reasons I think people like going to museums and like going to contemporary art is they like to be made to slow down. It's the very opposite of a game show. You go to a museum, there's a film about the National Gallery recently made by Fred Wiseman, a very old American documentary filmmaker. And there are scenes in the film in which he just films people looking at paintings. And it's very, very clear that they're lost in this act of looking at the picture. Silent, slow, quiet, and infinitely mysterious. Because we absolutely can't know, and, they're, and probably they're not formulating thoughts. You don't stand in front of a Goya and think, oh yes, the line is very... You just have this moment in which the space opens out, you, you know, the hustle bustle, the emails stop coming, your phone is off, you, you, know, you, you have a clear space in which you sink yourself into someone else's mind. And that is the state of sort of othering, where you actually find that richness of reciprocity, of the exchange, and not necessarily at a verbal level. I just want to thank you. Well, thank, you thank you very much. Thank you very, very much. Thank you very much. Thank you.